0: Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas for your listening edification. This
1: week, Co-op begins its second membership drive while under COVID-19 restrictions. We are so grateful for the support our listeners provided in the fall and proud to be your friendly neighborhood radio station for over 26 years. Our Spring Membership Drive runs from Monday, March 1st, through Sunday, March 14th, and donations can currently be safely and quickly made at koop.org. There you'll find the convenient Donate Now button, the new range of thank you gifts, and the always-anticipated t-shirt design. And remember, KOOP appreciates every contribution that continues to sustain us all. With your support, we will be there for you.
0: This show has been pre-recorded on Saturday, February the 27th to be rebroadcast live on Monday, March 1st, 2021 at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. Live in Austin, Texas on KOOP 91.7 FM and streaming live at co-op.org. You can listen live each Monday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 45th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So, stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, are you ready to go to war? Pedro Gatos and Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis since we began broadcasting on Co-op Radio in 2002, has been investigating and seeking to present genuine, truth-seeking perspectives of how U.S. foreign policy impacts majority populations around the world. We also seek to identify other human-generated behaviors that either create or aggravate human misery outcomes in the world that by definition are preventable and therefore reversible. Over the past 18 years, our record speaks to the veracity of our reporting. The impact of U.S. foreign policy in the world, on the world population, is unrivaled in reach and in impact. Our presumption is that the U.S. population is a compassionate and social justice-driven people, that if we know the truth of the matter, we support policies that promote the most fair and democratic outcomes. The problem is, too often, we are misinformed, by our government, and our mainstream media. Therefore, this show is dedicated to critically evaluating all information before accepting it as believable and as worthy for becoming the foundation for building our worldview understandings upon. Tonight concludes our six-part dedication to Black History Month and focuses on the 10th anniversary of the Libyan invasion by NATO forces in 2011 with special guest, Dr. Alan Cooperman. Enjoy. This This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. Today is February the 25th, 2021, and our show will be actually airing on, on Monday, March the 1st. And we are really blessed to have a very special guest that I'll introduce in just a second. We're continuing our Black History Month profile that actually began in January with Dr. King and has continued through the month of February. This past week marked the anniversary of some of the issues that preceded the Libyan invasion by NATO back in 2011 wanted to f- really focus this show and continue our discussion on Libya from last week, but according to a well-documented article in the book, uh, Illegal War on Libya, which was edited by Cynthia McKinney, and for those of you that are not familiar with her, she was a former American politician. She's also a former member of the Democratic Party and served six terms in the United States House of Representatives from 1993 to 2003. And She edited this book, and in this book was an article by Mahdi Darius Nazimroa, and that last name is N-A-Z-E-M-R-O-A-Y-A, who I've read some of his material in the past. He's a a very good researcher, and, and his article was entitled, The Big Lie in Libya, Using Human Rights, NGOs, and the Humanitarianism to Launch Wars. He documents very well a series of human rights organizations and think tanks that provided a network of sorts that he said that were utilized for preparing the stage for the toppling of the 2011 Libyan government, headed by Gaddafi, of course. They created the network of individuals which yielded, these human rights organizations actually yielded members that created the government, the proxy government that took power following that invasion. And this image-making is what he refers to, to the American public and the Western publics and such, but that propagated image-making to sell the illegal invasion to our Western news consumers. And the actual image-making, if you will, which we're going to have our guest speak to in some depth, but I just want to, again, set up this context of this discussion. But there were allegations that Gaddafi hired black African mercenaries in a substantial way to repress his own people, And that there were indiscriminate Libyan military jet attacks on civilians, not on rebels that were launching the initial uprising up in the northeastern parts of of Libya. And the third was that there was all of these massacres of civilians by Gaddafi. And at the time, the UN, despite Libyan requests, they failed to follow through and investigate and verify some of the concerns that were being pushed by the Libyan government that later proved to be much closer to the truth than what we were told. With this all being a context of sorts, the post-illegal overthrow of the government remarkably resulted in, among other things, not just a jihadist kind of free-for-all, but also articles began to emerge later on of real substantial nature, but not reported otherwise, of a slave trade emerging in Libya and it, it it become a lawless state according to the us un human rights office there was a, a an article in newsweek in 2018 human rights for sale libyan slave trade continues while militants kill and torture with impunity the un says by david brennan and in that article, it cited, quote, extrajudicial and unlawful killings are rampant, said uh, Andrew Gilmore, the U.N. Assistant Secretary General for Human Rights, reporting to the council in Geneva. The port city of Benghazi, where a U.S. ambassador was killed uh, in 2012, that was, if you remember, that was Christopher Stevens and several other diplomats were killed as well at that time. And this is, of course, where these extrajudicial killings were occurring, according to this article. And it's become an increasing pattern in and around Benghazi over the last two years. More bodies with signs of torture, hands-bound, were found. With respect to the slave trading in 2017, Fatou Bensouda, who is the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, called Libya a marketplace for the trafficking of human beings. In that same year, CNN journalists went undercover and filmed migrants being auctioned that some people may be familiar with. This re of relax in Libya as a result of U.S. foreign policy under the Obama administration is stunning, yet was generally unreported by the mainstream press. In an Irish Times article, Inside the Smuggler's Warehouse, Africa's 21st Century Slave Trade by Sally Hayden, on April 11th, 2020, they cited a 2019 report by the Women's Refugee Commission found that sexual violence against both genders in Libya is also widespread. Male refugees said they had been both raped and forced to have sex with other detainees while smugglers watched. I've heard reports of smugglers in Libya raping women on camera, then threatening to post the videos online if the woman ever spoke out, said the article. Anyhow, there's just a number of horrific types of of human rights abuses to men and women of sexual natures that that has been occurring that's documented as well, and it's just a horrific deal. But I wanted to move on to a couple of other things that I think are really important for the context here that included what we barely touched on last week, which was that it was interesting that we were claiming to be part of a a humanitarian intervention, yet the country we were intervening in had the highest human development index on the continent of Africa of some 54 nations. Libya at the time of the invasion had the lowest infant mortality rate in Africa, the highest life expectancy rate. Less than 5% of its population was undernourished. In other words, if you had children and you lived in Africa, there was no better place to have the greatest chance of having a very high quality of life relative to the rest of Africa than in 2011 in the very country that we were saying was so badly in need of humanitarian protection. The poverty rates were less than the Netherlands. And and so the questions that people often ask, well, what could the motive have been then if it was not for humanitarian purposes? And I wanted to share... There's an article by Jean-Paul Pogola in 2011. He's a a writer from from Cameroon, and he documented that in 1992, there were phone calls to and from Africa that were the most expensive in the world, and that there was a $500 million a year annual $500 million lease plus uh, billions in debt and interest that an initial loan would generate for years to come regarding a satellite leasing European satellite leasing that is like Intel stat for phone calls and this annual $500 million lease could be replaced and was being replaced by this process started in the 1990s led by the Libyan government and the African satellite would be have a one time cost of only 400 million as opposed to the 500 million annually that was being paid out by the continent. Meanwhile, over the past 14 years, prior to that, promises by the World Bank and the IMF and the U.S. and, and Europe was dragging their feet and providing that World Bank and the IMF funding, and meanwhile getting these exorbitant interest. It turned out that Gaddafi put up 300 million dollars towards this project. The African Development Bank added another 50 million, and the West African Bank 27 million. And on December 26 of 2007, Africa got its first communication satellite. And, you know, uh, what France lost particularly was this cash cow kind of thing. So perhaps there's other motives. Along those lines, in the same article and and in other places I've documented, that Libya had some $30 billion that it had earmarked for three key projects. And remember, Libya was about the only country, one of the few countries of the world without any national debt. And they had an amazing oil supply, but the oil itself was almost usable right out of the ground. In other words, it need minimal amount of refinery and that type of thing. So Libya was a very rich country, too. And President Obama froze his $30 billion that belonged to the Libyan Central Bank. And it, it had been earmarked for these three key projects I referred to towards creating what they considered an African federationist sort, maybe a United States of Africa type of concept, and the African Investment Bank in Certe, Libya, was one of these uh, projects. As this money was geared towards, another was the establishment of the African Monetary Fund, to be based in Yaounde, which is the capital of Cameroon, with uh, 42 billion dollars of capital funding, and it would replace the IMF. Uh, and its policies, and the last was in Abuja, the Nigerian city, and there was a African central bank was going to be based, which when it starts printing African money would be threatening the CFA franc and French half-century neocolonial leverage over some of these African nations. So along those lines, you can see that Gaddafi in Libya was perhaps moving in a direction that was going to provide a little more constriction the investment returns that were just overwhelming to Western nations while Africa was and continues to suffer huge rates of poverty. Anyhow, with that kind of as a background, I wanted to formally welcome, and we're really honored to have Dr. Alan Cooperman join us tonight from the University of Texas. Dr. Cooperman, thank you for joining us.
1: Uh, You're welcome.
0: Dr. Cooperman, he came to the LBJ School in 2005 as an assistant professor of public affairs And prior to joining the LBJ School faculty, he was a resident assistant professor of international relations at John Hopkins University, School of Advanced International Studies, SAIS, in Italy. He got his Ph.D. in political science from MIT, and he has a master's in international relations and international economics from SAIS. He has also published a number of articles and books and book chapters on ethnic conflict, U.S. military intervention, and nuclear proliferation. And uh, my main interest, uh, his work is around his writings on humanitarian interventions. He's studied extensively the genocide in Rwanda, and a co-editor of Gambling on Humanitarian Intervention, Moral Hazard, Rebellion, and Civil War. And then finally, just wanted to... Indicate that you, your work was actually widely cited during the actual period following 2011. And, and perhaps I can ask you there's, there's a couple of pieces that you wrote that are specific to our topic tonight. Did the R2P, that would be the responsibility to protect, the R2P, foster violence in Libya, that w- was published in 2019 in, in an international journal called the Genocide Studies and Prevention? And then also you, in 2019, there was another in the national interest, America's little known mission to support al-Qaeda's role in Libya. You wrote that as well. Let me ask you, can you maybe just start with giving us kind of an idea of of what Libya is like today and over the last 10 years since the NATO invasion led by the United States?
1: Oh, sure. Uh, Libya is, uh, as a result of the intervention in 2011 that was uh, authorized by the U.N. Security Council and led by the United States and some of its NATO allies and Middle East allies, Libya is and has been, since that intervention, a failed state. And what I mean by that is that it does not have a single government, It does not have a functioning economy. It does not have security. Its weapons from its military were pillaged and went off to cause death and destruction in neighboring states. Former members of its military fled to uh, neighboring Mali and caused a civil war there and a huge safe haven for radical Islamic uh, terrorists. Libya itself became a haven for both al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, also known uh, as ISIS. And uh, war has continued intermittently for the uh, nearly uh, 10 years now since the launch of the intervention. The country is still divided. They're having negotiations to try to uh, forge A single government but uh we'll just have to see uh killing and human rights violations have persisted for the 10 years since the intervention and of course things weren't perfect prior to the intervention but the the death destruction uh, economic decline human rights violations are much much worse after the intervention than they were before the intervention so That's why we look back and and think about how did this intervention come to be. It was supposed to be an intervention to make things better, but clearly and undeniably, it made things much, much worse.
0: Well, Well, let's ask you also, the rebellion, before we get to the issue of what allegedly the West claimed was going on, Let's take a step back. Are you familiar with this West Point study? It was in 2007. My understanding is that there were captured Al Qaeda documents from Osama bin Laden's pursuit. And in that, there were, and I think it was like 700 files of Al Qaeda personnel at that time. And what they found was that the highest number of Al Qaeda was in Rada'i, Saudi Arabia. But the highest ratio per 100,000 residents. <laughs> were in two cities that were in that northeastern sector of Libya where the quote-unquote rebellion initiated, which would be, I'm speaking specifically to Benghazi and Darnay, and there was a third city, I think, as well. But can you speak a little bit to the rebellion itself and the claims that seem to be quite valid that at least the military part of this whole rebellion emanated from these places that were very, very highly concentrated in, in, in al-Qaeda types. The main group was LIFG, uh, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, I think is the name. And they were responsible for you know, going into Iraq post-U.S. invasion of Iraq and fighting the U.S. and killing American soldiers, which, you know, of course, you know, a lot of people did as well. But can you speak a little bit? Can you kind of fill us in a little bit on your knowledge of the al-Qaeda element in that northeastern section?
1: the the records you're talking about um were seized by the u.s military in iraq and uh they analyzed the people from outside iraq uh, who had joined with the militants in iraq to fight against the u.s-led military occupation and the report that was published in early 2007 Identified this relatively small city in northeast Libya called Derna, and said, "quote It has far and away the largest per capita number of fighters uh, in the records that were seized in Iraq." And so, what that tells you is that northeast Libya was a hotbed of militant Islam. Of course, that's not a huge surprise because there had been multiple. Islamic uh, Islamist militant uprisings in northeast Libya, and each one had been suppressed successfully by Gaddafi uh, until the one in 2011 when the United States came to the aid of the Islamist radicals. And so, you know, the question is, of course, well, why would the United States, which has been fighting al-Qaeda and fighting ISIS, why would it come to the aid of a rebellion that comprised veterans of al-Qaeda mm-hmm. and ISIS? And it's a great question. And if, before I get to the answer, let me let me document the fact that, in fact, this was a, a, a radical jihadi uprising. Uh, I'm the first person, in, through my research, who has actually... Uh, documented that. Yeah, and, and, and if uh, I can,
0: if I can add, Doctor, I think that's really important. Is that you were one of the lone voices, and it's really important when you try to look at these situations empirically, the real, honest researchers and and such. But, but you you were the first to make that distinction. But you were also the first to question, or not just question, but document as you questioned, the contradictions in the claims that the West was making, like there was three major claims that one was that Gaddafi hired black mercenaries. Another was this Libyan military jet attacks on civilians. The third that we mentioned was the civilian massacres by Gaddafi. And you actually contradicted in a very documented way, the crux of those suggestions. Can you also, in your comments, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but, you know, address What was said at the time and what your research discovered was much closer to the truth?
1: Sure. The the problem is that almost everything that the media reported uh, about Libya at the time and almost everything that our government officials claimed about Libya at the time turned out not, not to be true. And for those of us who were watching closely at the time, we knew them not to be true at the time. So it's not that hindsight is twenty twenty; mm-hmm. it's that if you were knowledgeable and looked objectively, you could have figured out much of this at the time. So the, w- the way this was portrayed to the American people by the media and, and by the gov- U.S. government at the time was that this was a peaceful uprising in libya by western focused liberal democratic people within libya who were tired of a dictatorship and as part of the arab spring in the same way that there had been uprisings in tunisia and egypt now there was a peaceful mass peaceful uprising in libya and that Gaddafi, who was the leader of libya had uh, responded in a criminal way by targeting deliberately and killing thousands and thousands of civilians in just a few days and that was the predicate for the what, what came very soon after that which was a, a UN Security Council resolution authorizing intervention and then a, a military intervention that as I said was was spearheaded by the US with assistance from some NATO countries and some Middle East countries Uh, allies, such as Qatar. Okay, so that's the story. But it turns out that none of that is correct. And so, as you mentioned, and as I documented, there was not this mass killing of civilians. In fact, what Qaddafi was doing was not targeting civilians broadly, but was narrowly targeting rebels who were trying with military force to overthrow the government and take over the country. This claim about the bombing using planes to strafe civilians was debunked by an international NGO. The supposed black mercenaries were, in fact, merely dark-skinned Libyans. (laughs) Or in some cases, in some cases they were... From foreign countries, they had lived in Libya for long periods of time. You know, we, we, in the United States military, there are non citizens who yeah. serve in the military. We don't call them mercenaries, we just call them soldiers. Those are examples yeah. of, of some of the uh, information provided by the media and by our government that turned out not to be true. But but then if you look at the, at the at the core provocation that supposedly gave rise to all of this, it was supposedly a civilian uprising. And when I looked into it, and it took me a long time, it took me about seven years of research, but I finally figured out and documented that, in fact, the uprising from the first day was armed, militant, and led by veterans of al-Qaeda in eastern Libya.
0: Uh, Dr. maybe we need to take a quick break for the cause, and we will come right back to this fascinating discussion of your work right after this. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin, and we'll be back after this.